si escuchan también gente. Welcome everyone, you're listening to Daniel here on the Deer Report. Today we'll get an opportunity to speak with Blue Andrade. We'll focus on the issue of community, specifically within the social, political, and economic context of COVID-19. Blue, thank you for joining us. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, hello, my name is Blue Alonso Andrade. I'm a graduate of the University of uh, Redlands, a degree in history, and I'm looking to go to uh, law school in the near future. Blue, well, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing this conversation. Uh, just as a little bit of context, we met like, I want to say like, was it three years ago? Maybe, maybe even four. I'm not sure. It seems like it's been a while. Um, Over two, between two and three, yeah. Okay, so let's say two and three. Yeah, I was teaching a kind of studies class and you took like, I think it was like a week maybe or two that you kind of sat in and then you, and then you moved on because you had a, a conflict in classes. But in that time, I've got, a, you know, I've got an opportunity to kind of check in a little bit. And, and it's been interesting to kind of see where our conversations kind of like paralleled. I, I, I was excited for that moment that you took that trip out to Cuba and you came back and we didn't get a chance to catch up on, on you know, that experience. So I'm, I'm still curious to kind of get some of your thoughts on that experience. But today I was hoping we could talk a little bit about just your perspectives on, on community. Uh, also, within the context of where we are, you know, COVID-19 has put us in this quarantine shutdown period. And for a lot of us that have been doing work to support ourselves and our loved ones and the things we care about, this moment really put a challenge on what we felt was safe to do uh, realistic and so forth. And I'd like to begin there, you know, just hearing your thoughts on, on this year. How have you been kind of processing it? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I remember beginning of 2020, was it? It was strange, bizarre, because this was the first time I got to see my friends after like almost half the year in, uh, in Cuba studying. So coming back to all of this, it was, um, it was crazy because I think I would have had a different perspective if I didn't go to Cuba. Over there, they um, try to help out their citizens as much as they can. Um, some friends told me maybe like a couple of months ago, they just started going back to work. And that's because like their government, they, they were looking after them. They were um, promoting health above all and definitely just trying to make sure that the citizens were okay. And you just see this blunder here. I mean, first of all, we have the quarantine, then we have um, like overt police brutality, the dominance of a um, more conservative mindset in the United States, higher patriotism, nationalism. It was jarring just to see all that. Also, like, it was, it was scary in the beginning because I was definitely out there. I was um, out there protesting with my friends too. And, you know, just having that fear of like, a police officer having a gun to you, it's just something not a lot of people really know, you know? And then you have the fake kind of um, concern that the government tries to put on you saying that we're here for you, but you know, I've been working, um, you know, laboring job, but they cut your pay from like that whole extra two dollars for you know working during quarantine and everything like that 
This is okay. We can't pity you that much anymore. Just get back to work. It's that kind of stuff. I think it's difficult to really consider just the ways that we have a disconnection. I think a, a perception um, among the community, the populace in the United States, so that we have seen, you know, this last moment. I'm referencing January 6th, where like it became obvious to many, but not to all. I think a lot of people had already understood that there were fundamental perceptions of reality uh, mm -hmm. being experienced in the United States. And this, uh, January 6th in particular, you know, when people go to Washington, D.C. and they storm into the, the government building, their perception of reality is, I guess, the kindest way of saying, you know, that they were just really going somewhere different than most of us were. And it reveals that even though we're sharing the same context to some degree, we're experiencing the, the moment very differently. And one of the things that you highlighted was this sense of how the quarantine affected community, how community, and by community, I want to pause and consider just the, those people that we are around, that know us, we know them, that we depend on them and depend on us. And that community is very different. You know, it's very small sometimes, you know, a couple hundred, even less people that you know at your job, maybe, or at your school. Mm. But the part that makes it difficult is that the government also plays this role at presenting itself as part of your community, part of your caretaking. And you put this phrase in, I want to highlight uh, like this fake concern. It's fair to use it for me. Uh, I was thinking about like, how I resonate if I were to use it because it feels non-genuine when people say like, we care about your safety, but we are not going to support you in healthcare and making sure that like you have enough food. And at that point, I think you do have this, oh, a lot of us have to really ask ourselves, is it genuine? Is it genuine to believe that our government cares about us when it does very little to actually protect us? And the protection line is difficult because there are even places where the very government becomes the active risk so that the police state is one. Many of us think of the police as agents of the government that are here to take care of us, protect mm -hmm. us. And many of us grew up knowing that that was not true. We yeah. never felt that they were. And, you know, when we're asked, why did you feel that, Danny? that the government was, that the police was not there to protect you. Like, because they hurt me. They literally hurt my friends. They intimidated us. They made sure we were always scared. And those moments, I think, can be highlighted as fake concern. So that as the government says, we care about you, their actions reveal otherwise. Here we are, you know, in, in this moment of COVID-19 uh, there's been a transition, you know, as of this recording, number 45 leaves office, we get number 46. And mm -hmm. these politicians now are imbued with a responsibility, at least fictively or symbolically of caretaking. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on that aspect. You mentioned something that you spent some time in, a, in Cuba 
how has it been, you know, to think about like re and not re-entry, but reaccustom, you know, because I'm thinking about like that moment where most of us travel. There is a moment where you relax enough to really take in and become part of the new place. And yet you have to return and kind of re-enter during a time of, of great, you know, insecurity. Let's say coming back from Cuba, it's um it's interesting to see the differences in the model of governance, especially like um what you consider like the government has a foot in here as opposed to um over there. Like over here, we have this big pharmaceutical company that basically makes many of the decisions that the government can't necessarily make. We have a uh, very private enterprises and slowly you see a lot of these enterprises, they got a lot wealthier during this whole time, while a lot of people were struggling. I was actually listening to uh, this one man. His name is uh, Richard Wolff. Very, very um, interesting uh, political thinker, economic thinker. He described the United States as a, um, as a country of contradictions, uh, where you have um, one of the most developed pharmaceutical companies in the world, but we have the sickest population. We also have the most abundance of um, capital or wealth in the world, but we also have a great amount of poverty. One of the most um, tactical and powerful police um, unions in the world and the most people incarcerated. Like, what does this mean? Over there in Cuba, it's like, um, the government has a hold in uh, the pharmaceutical company so they don't act out of hand, which uh, some people may disagree with over here. They also um, control communications, um, transportation, more things of necessity for the population over there. Because to me, they already experienced rampant like economic models of uh, capitalism over there with uh, Batista and people before. And that's something that people don't really acknowledge, especially in the United States. They have vindictive attitudes towards uh, Fidel and the whole revolution but they don't necessarily look at what the revolution was, right? Started, or what was there before the revolution. You know, there was, um, there was a clear divide of class, of uh, race, you know, things that we see here. Police brutality was rampant. But you have a group of people from the bottom, well, not necessarily Fidel, because he was an educated man, lawyer, but you have um, the farmers reclaiming their land. You have, um, the working class people are trying to make lives better for themselves. But here, it's like there's a dependence or kind of the belief that the government will do for me. But I think that's only prevalent in a certain class of people here. You know, there's people who even after Hurricane Katrina, they recognize that the government is gonna, isn't going to come and save you. Yeah, people down south in Atlanta or like um, people still holding lands of uh, like the Gullah people. They recognize that in many ways, the government is your enemy, but they have the benefit of community and um, community knowledge and strength to understand what their enemy is or who is uh, putting harm to them. There's differences in that, like um, differences in class and differences in, uh, I guess, even race, that that's where the difference lies, you know? To, to return back to perception, that our perception becomes reality for many of us, so that our conversation may feel to some 
that it is based on on an inability to understand like complex economic theory yeah also maybe to understand how a nation state operates but there is something about a genuine critique that all humans can put together mm-hmm. which says something to this effect this doesn't work for me and i may not understand everything but i can identify that this does not work for me so when the government makes actions that feel unfair we get told you know you just don't understand it you know if 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 we don't save the banks if we don't give the money to big pharmaceutical companies um the whole thing falls apart and yeah. and as i think about that uh statement i also find it important to reject it to give a little bit of credit to say maybe i don't understand all the details of what a hedge fund is mm-hmm. and how wall street makes these nano transactions that produces billions a year mm-hmm. however i can't tell that when the government gives billions of dollars to one sector and mm-hmm. nothing to another it seems unfair mm-hmm. and i think that's the one that i was i want to capitalize on because as we we consider you know where we are right now we are well, we we are being asked to sit and wait to shut down to protect mm-hmm. ourselves and our loved ones from covid-19 transmission but we are also being told to not expect a lot. Yes, you know, if you're getting an extra $600 from unemployment and then it stops or you're getting an extra $2 as an essential worker bonus, but then it stops. You were told, "Hey, just go back to how it was before." And I I'd like to think about this moment as actually a moment of opportunity to really think about what can we do to make our communities better. because you mentioned something earlier right now about this reflection of seeing a different system of governance and that may be something that's too big for us to feel that we can participate even though i don't think that's actually true i think that there are many of us that are pushing to transform our politicians to respond to the needs of the many of the majority mm-hmm. and and i think that's going to be a point to see what happens with this administration because this administration in particular biden is if anything a centrist if not really a a really conservative dude which is a mask of of a democratic party you know he's very big on supporting big pharma the major uh, insurance companies in wall street and less so you know the the working class folk but i wonder if if what we think when we think about where we are right now we're asking ourselves to really question what is the role of government in our lives and as you mentioned that we we learned early on that especially this this moment from march to where we are here from 20 march 2020 to january we saw that we saw our communities devastated by the inability of the government to really respond to our needs yeah so that we didn't have to have a class of political science to understand how government works and why it wasn't reaching us to be able to state that there seems to be to use your words a, a fake concern you know like we we saw family members i know in my own circle 
pass away due to COVID-19. And some of these people were, were aware of the risks, but didn't have an opportunity to say, I'm going to shield myself because they were part of the sector of working class folk that could not work remotely. Some of us could work through this by home, but what happens when you work in a meat factory, when you're picking food, you can't do that remotely point that I, that I wanted just to emphasize because I heard you speak and I, I think about this place that a lot of us get critiqued when we speak about comparing where we are now or where we are in the United States to other places that are doing things differently. And that seems really uh, frustrating because, I don't know, I, I, there's something very naive about believing that there's only one way of doing things. Like nothing yeah. else seems to work like that. Like our, our very own science is open, you know, to other innovations. Our, our very medicine the same way. But something about our politics really stagnates the conversation. Like how dare you talk about another government style? And I think it has to do with maybe just the, the inability to be creative and trusting of the people, maybe. I would say for... um like the issues with uh, people working in uh, different sectors. Like I'm, st I'm still working as a barista in Starbucks. And how many times have uh, one of my coworkers uh, got COVID? I think it was like um, four times we had to shut down for a quick second and then come back. And it's interesting to see, like, you have, um, you have both sides of this kind of agreeing with each other in the sense that you either give us the means to live and be safe within our own house, our own confines, like you're suggesting, or you keep this open and let people work so they can actually earn a living to keep living. And that's the biggest issue that both sides have, but their approach is very difficult. When I say both sides, it's like um, like more of the Democrats and the Republicans. And you see that at um, on January 6th. What was the issue right there? Like, what was their arguments when they were coming to storm in the uh, White House? It was more like, it wasn't necessarily about change. It wasn't about necessarily revolution. It's about keeping the same person in power. Was it not? I feel with, like, people who um have completely supported Biden, which, like, depending on who you vote for or not, it's like, he is a centrist. And if not, more conservative than anything. And how did he win? What was his arguments? It wasn't necessarily about protecting the public or anything like that, or giving um med medical care or things like that. It was just that I'm not the other one. And he, you know, him and his allies pandered to uh, different communities, uh, people of color, things like that. But in reality, what are they going to do for them? Once they win, everything is like forgotten about. And we see that with um. I think most people see that with most politicians too. So when we see about like um, our own community, we definitely we definitely have to look towards the community to protect one another. And I think that's uh, one of the things that this pandemic has neutralized. In with um, quarantine, we can meet up with our people. We can really do as efficient work as we wanted to. So in a way, we struggled definitely. Well, let me just emphasize that that line that you bring forward, this idea 
of considering this moment, this quarantine period of not just shutting down, you know, the your your, your basic like movie going activities and going to the local bar art you know, on the weekends, but the effect of, of of understanding that you are part of a community, a, a circle of people of support. But then what if that community was also based on this energy to fight for your rights, fight for things that are just improve the future for yourself and your loved ones. Mm -hmm. Those type of circles, um, I can only imagine how it looks, you know, like if you were to map it out, just the amount of, of dynamic energy that was happening right before the shutdown in March, 2020. And in the United States, at all levels, you know, there's a slowdown. You know, the streets go empty. But during that same moment, you know, George Floyd's killing activates a lot of people to risk themselves, put themselves at risk, and take to the streets. So the Black Lives Matter movement in particular um, is one of the examples where we saw the community not necessarily neutralized. In fact, I think they were resistant to be neutralized. And the other communities are still there and they're still working. But I, I do feel that it would be fair to say that there has been a slowdown. And that slowdown, I think, is, is, is also rippled in certain spaces, like the idea of just the community of care work you know, the fact yeah. that a lot of us um, maybe didn't think of ourselves as like uh, people that were committed to social change. You know, we weren't going to take to the streets, but we did like to meet up on Friday somewhere and, and be with people that cared for us and we cared for them. And in that, I think there's this space of challenging yeah, the, the overall the overall pressures that a lot of us feel. Like we were just talking right now about like, the sense of of caretaking that we expect from the government, but the government also expects us to play, you know, to participate, so that we're supposed to be working all the time, you know, because there's that kind of intersection of, of the role of government in supporting, like, you know, major capitalism, and the fact that we have these very small numbers of, of uh, corporations and individuals that really hold the majority of the wealth. That only happens through playing with the game so that like as I work, I get a, a salary, but the profits of my salary goes to the owner. That owner gets to keep a little bit nicer percentage and accumulate that wealth. That's just capitalism. I'm not even trying to say whether it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's just the outline of how, how resources move from one location to the other. And what I am trying to get to is this line that says, there was a moment where we were able to tolerate it because it gave us also opportunities to feel healthy so that I knew I was working 40 hours a week. I knew I was tired. But if I got to hang out on the weekends, I could do it again next week. Yeah. But what happens during the shutdown where I'm still putting in my 40 hours, but I can't go anywhere. Yeah. I start seeing the transparency of the system. The transparency mm -hmm. of like, oh, in reality, 
my only purpose, according to my employer, is just to output. And they never really cared as long as I showed up on time and left on time. They didn't care what I did afterwards. But now, it feels that now I care, though, because I go to work. And if I'm unable to feel healthy afterwards on, on my off time, I start questioning, well, why am I even working so much? You know, yeah. what's the purpose of this whole life? And I think that's the one that, that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on as we start moving toward this subject of community. Where do we find ourselves in this moment? One way to get at that question is um, to analyze how the how capitalism has advanced here in the way that you have investments in certain things. Like we talk about Black Lives Matter movement, but thing is, George Soros is invested in it. And the commoditization of it is like um, then putting it on shirts, then putting it on buttons, making it very, you know, corporate. And, you know, they, they wouldn't be investing in it if they didn't expect anything in return, right? So that's something that's really concerning to me when you see um, some of the people who have the most amount of wealth who have never really cared about the community be invested in that kind of slogan. And we can get into um, like how that gets neutralized, but that's a different topic. But for um, the worker, it's um, like in my more radical mind, it would, I would say like, you know, have like a full massive uh, strike, you know, like a general strike to show that, you know, they are essential. I mean, if they were essential, how come you don't pay them like they're essential workers? And as you said, like, it is in like the capitalist scheme, you pay your workers so they could uh, reinvest in products. They could uh, buy products and they could keep the whole uh, thing running. So to see that they don't give you enough money, to see that they don't even give you like enough of a check to for welfare or anything like that. They don't give you anything so you could go out and buy and keep the economic uh, machine running. It's pretty foolish in their own way. And I think one of the biggest things that I've been, I've been very critical on was like, I don't want to like call out them on a podcast, but like the libertarian model or the libertarian ideals of um, keep the government out of things. But in reality, um, what Trump has done, he has told investors to divest in foreign stocks. And a lot of them did. And it's primarily targeted against China. And we could talk about that another time. But it's like, isn't your whole idea to not do what the government says in the market? When they actively say divest in this one stock, are you supposed to be against it? But you see a lot of them having the don't tread on me flag at Trump rallies. And so I'm just, I'm just really confused by that, honestly. I think it really, uh, there's something that you don't, that they all don't um, recognize. It's like, this is all of our struggles. Like the working class, whether they be on the left or the right, that they have the same struggle of, you know what, the system isn't working for us that we are the working class and we recognize that these systems are hurting us at this time. We, and when you say like, um, 
we worked 40 hours uh, in a week. And then you go out to have fun to decompress and that's gone. The clarity that we have in this kind of system, it's, it's a little daunting for some people, but you know, in a lot of ways, it's an inspiration to you know, advocate for your own um, well-being and the well-being of other workers as well. Like this could be a radical moment, but it's also been a struggling one at that. I like the space of optimism that you pose right now by thinking about like this could be a radical moment. And it depends how you hear that word, right? I think I feel very safe in thinking about where we can learn to feel comfort in words that at one point were taboo words. You know, mm -hmm. whether it's like socialism, that was a taboo word. It still is a taboo word. But it doesn't have to be a taboo word. It's just a word. Um, the word radical, activist, these words, taboo words. And I say taboo words because like, if I used them, I knew that I would get people to turn around and go, oh, you're one of those? Yeah. But to me, it's like they don't say what you're an activist for, right? So the word activist could be you know, something that's not even positive, like something very destructive progressive progressing toward where you know it's just but i'm just kind of thinking about this line that says even radical thought it's only radical out of comparison like right like it doesn't tell you what it is that you want mm -hmm. so what i like to kind of think about is how we can speak i don't know with, with full optimism and the things we want so that if I say I want everyone to have taxpayer-contributed health care, like the way we have some version of a public school system, mm -hmm. and someone says that's like radical socialist um, health care, I go like, I don't even care what you call it. I, could, I just want that system because it is one that I feel would be good for us. The way that we invest in having like taxpayer-based firefighters, how our roads are. Like it's full of stuff that we have somewhat already consented that we are going to pay taxes and we're all going to chip in. And some of us don't even drive, but we make sure that the freeways get funded, you know? So why do we do that? Because it's something that you mentioned, like we know that like there's this sense of community and I don't know everyone in my community, but I want to believe that like maybe maybe having that local elementary school should get funded. That'll be good for us. And I think that's the way that I, I, I feel optimistic about changing the conversation right now because I think about or hearing, I've been hearing a lot of people speak about what they want. And yeah. one of the things that they, they have been saying is like, I want to feel that my work cares about me so mm -hmm. if before i was told like hey um i need you to come in on fridays you're like well can i stay on fridays at home and work from home and before they said no but during this moment we realized we didn't have to be at, at physical space all the time many of our work patterns were able to kind of accommodate and those accommodations we want to make them permanent 
We want them to think about, for example, if you paid us an extra two dollars because you thought that we needed it, don't take it away. You know, leave it, leave it. And and then the question lies this, and what you said earlier, there's a contradiction inherent in a system that makes it hard for you to play the game unless and this is an uncomfortable statement unless the system has a tolerance for our opting out not opting out our forced opting out and i'm trying to be very polite with my words by saying like if you make it so i do not live i cannot play if you make it so that i cannot feed myself and i die mm -hmm. I cannot work and consume because there's there's this line that says this the system only wants you to be a consumer that's your whole purpose when you're working you have a little bit extra dollars you shouldn't keep them in your pocket you yeah. should put them out there lies the inequality of in, in, in how we perform this game because those of us that are making let's say, under $50,000, we put everything back into the system. Those of us that are making $500,000 a year, we put the majority in our pockets. We don't put it back in the system. And it seems like, what a ripoff, because if they're playing the game, they should put all of that back in, just how we put it back in. Like at the end of the month, most of us are like almost back where we start at the beginning of the month. That's how we're living, because yeah. that's we don't we don't have we don't have more money to keep, and it's not because we're like big spenders. Like it just costs money to pay your rent, have your food, go hang out a little bit with your friends. So we know that we're putting all that input, uh, all our all our money back into the system, and it cycles out. I'm somewhat doing an arbitrary number with fifty thousand dollars a year, but I do think it's a fair number because. At that price, at $50,000 a year, you're making probably like about almost four grand a month, probably like $3,500 after taxes. And then you have to ask yourself, well, okay, how much is your rent? And if you're doing like a, on, a, on a good rent, $1,500, you know, yeah. that's like almost half already. And I'm thinking about this line that says there's a contradiction in keeping us that scarce that limited because as you pointed out the goal is to have us consume other products so mm -hmm. the only question i have right now for myself is like what is the tolerance that the system has i, I got a call from my from a cousin of mine and he worked for one of the uh the delivery companies i won't give their name out but just one of the delivery companies and he was talking about the risk of covid And he goes, Danny, like, I forgot how he said it, but he said he asked this question, like, like, why doesn't the government care? No, no, no. He said it this way. He said, do you think the government is doing it on purpose? Mm -hmm. Like putting us at risk. And I said, I don't know if they're really trying to kill us on purpose, but I believe that the government doesn't really find it a risk for them uh, to take the number of people that are dying. And he goes, like, yeah. what does that mean? He's like, well, the number of people that are dying is, is within their tolerance. And I was just being maybe even too careless with my words. And I probably sound very careless right now to people. But I felt that 
it, it was saying if it was a higher number and the government said, oh no, we need these people to work, they would they would intervene much faster. But if it is only 2,000 people a day dying and not 20,000, maybe that's what it was. The, the mm -hmm. fact that the numbers were just within the tolerance so that the system could continue working. And they only worry when it goes higher. But for me, it's hurtful because any death is somebody's loved one. Mm -hmm. Even if it was two people a day, dude, that's someone's brother, mother, daughter, like, so that I think that's what's hurtful that when we talk about community is that we take inventory differently. We think about like every one of us matters. It's not about tolerance that, oh, it's only two and not 20,000. And maybe that's the line that helps us a little bit to think about the fact that the system analysis, the system-wide perspective of like capitalism is incompatible as a perception to the one that we take on as community members. Because in community, we think about individuals. I think um, more of my pessimistic views, it's scary to see that there have been a massive amount, well, actually not even massive, because only a few corporations that have made outs with so much money during this whole time. And, you know, you get um, people's livelihoods um, in danger, some people getting out of jobs, people losing their businesses. And that's not insignificant. I mean, we're looking at some of the biggest corporations amass amassing a huge amount of money, investing in to different uh, markets. Like you got um, Bill Gates investing into like plant-based proteins and things like that. And it's strange when you start looking at where they're putting their money in. Like they're slowly like taking more control. And like maybe this is more of my pessimistic uh, view. It's like we're in the one of the worst recessions in history. And like, that's something that's not insignificant. We have to acknowledge that our economy is in trouble. And even when I say our economy, it's like, I don't even play that much a part of it besides working. And it's scary to think about that because if it's an economy that really um, that includes everyone else, there's, regardless of how much they put in, everyone's in danger. So when I think about community, that's like the only solution I could think of like to really ensure everyone's safety. We definitely have to look for ourselves to promote better health because the food that has been, the food market that has been like successful here has not been like the healthiest. We have a lot of fast food places making a huge amount of money too. And not necessarily paying their workers more. So that's one thing that we have to look at is our own health. Because obviously this whole pandemic, it's an attack on our health. And the working class and a lot of the people of color that are in that working class are the ones more at risk. So one is health that the community has to look to. The other one is education because I mean, what I hear is they're putting kids back into school and they're trying to, like, you know, sanitize a whole, like, school with uh, different kinds of um, chemicals. I'm like, I, I know, I'm not sure if that's okay, though, you know? Like, having, a, having our kids go into a school like that has been pumped full of chemicals to sanitize the whole place, that's 
a little scary too. So maybe that's another thing the community has to look to is like more of a local education, but on the bigger scale and something that um, funny enough, an economist who was a Trump supporter that said this, it's not that the rich people have to pay more taxes. They just have to pay their taxes. That's the, and like, they might pay the taxes, but they also have huge amounts of investments in stocks that it didn't matter. They're still making out like bandits do. Um, there are solutions to the system that many people would see as radical, but it's obvious that how the system has said it works, it's not the case. How it says that you make money, you uh, redistribute it back into the system, and the whole cycle continues, and it's okay. Obviously, that's not the case now. And people might not like it, but capitalism is probably on its last legs in America. We have to find a different kind of system or else we all suffer. Like the economy suffers, we all suffer. Find a solution so we could get better. And that's the probably the least radical thing anyone could ever say. We have solutions. We just have to put them in place. Lou, I want to thank you for sharing this conversation with me today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. You have just finished hearing a conversation with Lou Andrade. We shared our thoughts on the subject of community, looking at some of the contradictions between the government's perception and actions in the caretaking of community and the counter stories of the communities themselves as they work to manifest an optimistic future for themselves that express safety and care. You've been listening to Daniel here on the D-Report. You can check out our archive page at dreport.org to review past segments. I want to thank you for tuning in. Stay safe. Stay strong. Join us again next week.